In the name of God, the Creator, the Christ, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. This past summer, I took a trip back to Bennington, Vermont, which is my hometown. I wasn't born in Bennington, but I consider it my home. I, I spent most of my formative years there growing up, and I know they say you can't ever go home again, but I like to go home there. And of course, while I was there, I had to visit Tasty Freeze. I mean, that was absolutely essential. A lot has come and gone over the years in Bennington, Vermont, but somehow Tasty Freeze manages to stay the course. And as I stood in the parking lot outside that little establishment, standing there together with a lot of other people who were enjoying the ice cream, it was a late spring evening, it was warm, the insects were beginning to fly around. I noticed the large sign advertising Jensen's Restaurant that was right next door to Tasty Freeze and had basically been next door to it for the last 50 years. And Jensen's is closed now. Its future is uncertain. The building may be demolished. The large sign that once invited people to come in to all-you-can-eat fish and chips or a frosty mug of root beer now bears this message. Thanks for all the great memories. Those memories were made possible because of a man named Chuck Jensen, for whom the restaurant is named. Chuck Jensen was my next door neighbor. He and his wife and children lived alongside us for many years. And Chuck was one of the most extraordinarily generous people I've ever known. He had a full-time job running a restaurant. Not an easy kind of work to do in the first place, but of course he was also raising a family. He was involved in many other kinds of initiatives in our town. And yet he always found time for me. And after my father died, Chuck became a really instrumental person in my life. He, it felt like he was always available to me and I could never quite figure out how he made himself so readily available to me since he was so busy in so many other areas of his life. So there was Chuck Jensen, but he wasn't alone. There was also Mike, the man who was my dentist. And then there was Steve, the man who lived up the street and owned the local plumbing supply store. And then there was another Mike who also lived next door to me and to my mother, and he was a principal of a local elementary school. Now these were all busy people with young families, and they always made time for me. They invited me to sporting events, and we all played tennis together, and they took me out to breakfast to eat, and they encouraged me. They wanted to know how I was doing at school. And in many ways, they were my closest friends, even though I wasn't necessarily that close to them in age, primarily because they took such a personal interest in me. They were generous with their time, with their support, with their wisdom, with their hospitality. It is easy to forget how much the development of a human being needs the encouragement of people who don't necessarily have the time and the energy and the resources to offer that encouragement, but find out how to do it anyway. I think about all of the teachers in my life who were so engaged in their personal lives. They already had so much to do, but yet they stretched themselves. They went above and beyond in order to give me guidance or resources that would help me to grow as an individual. It's easy to forget how quickly a nation can lose its stability when we stop extending ourselves 
for the well-being of others. When we start to see the worst in each other and elevate that, rather than to ask the question, I wonder how this person needs my support. David Brooks is a columnist for the New York Times, and he has a name for the virtues that were demonstrated by these men who played such a significant life in my teenage years. He calls them eulogy virtues. I, I wish we could find a better name for them than that, but his point is that the kinds of things that made these men warm and caring and generous people are the kinds of things that get talked about at funeral services. So that when, if someone has died and friends and family members get up to speak about that person, it's usually the eulogy virtues, right, that come to the surface. And he says in his article, which actually was written a few years ago, that he'd come to this conclusion that there were two sets of virtues, what he called the eulogy virtues and the resume virtues. And he says that the resume virtues are the skills that we bring to the marketplace. Those are the, the things that make us successful in our careers and our work, and they're not unimportant. But he says the eulogy virtues are usually the ones that are talked about at your funeral. Whether you were kind or brave or honest or faithful, were you capable of deep love? Those are the stories that come to the surface. It's not usually the resume virtues. And I think he's right about this. And he says about once a month, I run across a person who radiates an inner light. These people can be in any walk of life. They seem deeply good. They listen well. They make you feel funny and valued. You often catch them looking after other people, and as they do so, their laugh is musical and their manner is infused with gratitude. They are not thinking about what wonderful work they're doing. They're not thinking about themselves at all. And he says in this article, I realized that I wanted to be a bit more like those people. I realized that if I wanted to do that, I was going to have to work harder to save my own soul. I was going to have to have the sort of moral adventures, I love that phrase, that produce that kind of goodness. I was going to have to be better at balancing my life. There are many ways to define the generosity of spirit that David Brooks has identified as that great goal for his life. But one of the best that I've come across is this, and I think it relates to the, to the men who were very important to me in my teenage years. It's a condition of constant readiness to do good for others. That's quite a job description. A condition of constant readiness to do good for others. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could establish that foundation as children and have that as our baseline going forward. So yes, perhaps we might be successful and ambitious in a particular line of work, but the baseline would be that kind of compassion. The readiness to respond to the world with an open heart and a listening spirit and a ready willingness to reach out when outreach is needed. The phrase on call comes to mind, but it's a compassionate form of on call, a constant readiness to do good for others, even if we don't feel like it, even if we would rather be doing a million other things. I used to think about my neighbor, by the way, Chuck Jensen, who made a commitment with me one year to play in an indoor tennis league once a night 
And so we, and it was actually at some distance from our homes. And I used to think that here was this man who probably awakened at four or five in the morning to go get his restaurant business ready for the day, worked there all day, then came and picked me up, drove us to play tennis. We did that for a couple of hours, drove me all the way back home. It's that above and beyond quality that gives generosity its special and unique energy. And it's an energy that's often communicated in a very personal way. This is not the kind of thing that can always be communicated via a check, though there can be large, generous donations made for causes that are game changers for organizations and people in need. But there's also about generosity, I think for the most part, this sense that it's a personal interconnection. In conversations that I've had with many people in our congregation and in books and articles that I have read, I hear a growing concern that this spirit of generosity that was once reflected in my experience by my next door neighbors and by teachers may not be as robust as it once was. Political rhetoric right now is harsh and demeaning, less and less generous and more and more abusive. Crossing the aisle in political terms used to be about reaching across political party differences to get something done for the common good. Crossing the aisle now is like crossing a surging river and you may feel that you're going to go under and never come back up. In terms of attention span, it seems increasingly true that we are more generous towards our technological devices than we are towards people. As face-to-face -face time, becomes di displaced by face-to-screen time, we risk the loss of human connection, the moments of intimacy that bond us together, that make us feel like we're in a common enterprise together, that we're all in it together somehow. Some of our social institutions, the church among them, are on the decline, leaving us to wonder whether where coming generations will find the resources to be able to navigate their, their way, to, to find a path towards greater and greater generosity? Who will tell the stories that inspired previous generations to that con condition of constant readiness to do good for someone else? In his more recent writings on the fate of generosity in our culture and in the wider world, David Brooks sees another side to this question of how this virtue in particular is faring these days. And he's not quite as pessimistic as others may be. He says, over the past few decades, social scientists have devised many situations in which research subjects are given the chance to behave either selfishly or cooperatively. In his book, The Penguin and the Leviathan, The Triumph of Cooperation Over Self-Interest, Yochai Benkler of Harvard summarized the findings. In any given experiment, he reported, about 30% of the people do indeed behave selfishly. But, he continued, fully half of all people systematically, significantly, and predictably behave cooperatively. Benkler stepped back to hammer home the core conclusion from this vast body of research. He says, the point is, Across a wide range of experiments in widely diverse population, one finding stands out. In practically no human society examined under controlled conditions have the majority of people consistently behaved selfishly. Humanity, says Brooks, 
hasn't th thrived all these centuries because we're ruthlessly selfish. We thrive because we're actually really good at cooperation, despite what the news may indicate. And Brooks says, I'd say that a lot of our public thinkers have vastly underestimated the importance of the moral and social motivations woven into human nature. So there is this sense that there are rich and amazing and wondrous possibilities for generosity and the cultivation of this virtue in our lives. And again, despite what the news may suggest, it's important to stay focused on that good news. And some good folks at the University of Notre Dame are doing just that. At the University of Notre Dame, there is a science of generosity initiative. They use the word generosity in a very specific way to refer to the virtue of giving good things to others freely and abundantly. It's a very rich definition. There's a sense of goodness about it, that the gift is given freely, it's not coerced, and it's given abundantly, right? That's the above and beyond quality. It's giving that is not simply anything in abundance, they say, but rather giving those things that are good for others. That's so key. Because how can you know what others need unless we're close enough to understand their needs and what their longings are and what their desires are? Generosity always intends to enhance the true well-being of those to whom it gives. If the spirit of generosity is an expression of the spirit of God, and I think it is, then it's inexhaustible. It's always seeking and finding some new channels through which to flow. It's there in Gaza and in Israel, even if no one is reporting on it. It's present where people reach out to heal and protect and give comfort. It's present where hostage negotiations are taking place. It's present where people are providing necessary medical services or figuring out how to rebuild a building or how to bring needed supplies to those in need. Some time ago, I was listening to an interview with an individual who had survived an act of violence, and I can no longer remember where this took place exactly, but I wrote down at the time what that person said. In the interview, I think he was asked the question about the level of his anger about what had happened, and he said, rage would feel good, but a generous spirit will be better for my heart. Now this is, to me, the kind of phrase, the kind of human statement that comes from a very deep place in the human heart. Rage would feel good. It would be understandable to have anger and frustration, but a generous spirit will be better for my heart and consequently better for the world. During the month of October, we've been celebrating generosity as a force for good, a force for the human heart, and it's been fun to see the multitude of ways that this goodness can play itself out in the world. For example, sometimes the spirit of generosity does come as a wonderful, amazing surprise in our lives. This past week, I came across a very interesting story about a minor league baseball team in Iowa, the Iowa Cubs. And last year, their majority owner, Michael Gartner, had decided to sell the team. And so three days after Christmas, Michael Gartner summoned the employees of the Iowa Cubs minor league baseball team to a staff meeting at Principal Park, the team stadium in Des Moines, Iowa. 
The team's sale to a global sports and entertainment company had closed that day, and Mr. Gartner, 83 years of age, said he wanted to give the employees their new business cards. But there were no business cards in the envelopes that he handed out. Instead, inside were checks worth $2,000 for every year each employee had worked for the team. $600,000 of bonuses in total for the 23 full-time employees. Employees who work in maintenance, accounting, marketing, and other areas receive checks for anywhere from $4,000 to $70,000, said Mr. Gartner, who was the team's majority owner for 22 years. My jaw dropped, said Alex Cohen, 33 years of age, who's been the team's radio broadcaster since 2018 and has worked in professional baseball since 2009. It's an industry where you work really hard and sometimes you don't get compensated like that. Now, sometimes generosity can be demonstrated not just in the way that we give, but also in the way that we receive. We're not always very good at making space for others to help and heal us, to reach out to our lives. And that's, that's a different kind of generosity, giving people that space to impact our lives. In Cormac McCarthy's novel, The Road, he tells the story of a man and his son who are living in a post-apocalyptic world. It's a devastating, barren kind of world. But these two people are in search of home. And as they travel along, of course, they're extremely close, father and son, they're survivors together, and they've worked out all kinds of little things that they do to, to create a little bit of pleasure in their lives. And there's a beautiful scene in this novel where Cormac McCarthy describes what it means to be generous as a receiver. So he says that in this one moment when father and son have stopped to take a rest in a pocket of his knapsack, the father had found a last half pocket of cocoa. And he fixed it for the boy, and then he poured his own cup with hot water and sat blowing at the rim, on the rim, so at the rim of the cup. So he gives the cocoa to his son, but he doesn't take any for himself. You promised not to do that, the boy said. What? You know what, Papa. He poured the hot water back into the pan and took the boy's cup and poured some of the cocoa into his own and handed it back. I have to watch you all the time, the boy said. It's this beautiful moment where these two individuals are sharing a very, very difficult life together. What, what the boy is teaching, the son is teaching his father, is he has to also learn how to be a generous receiver as well as a generous giver. Sometimes generosity just seems to spring up out of nowhere a gift that restores our confidence and our hope in the world. But I also want to say that generosity can be learned, and I think it can be practiced. And I think that's a very important element about this virtue that I would love to elevate. After all, it was a generous helping of experience and know-how and wisdom that helped Captain Chesley Sullenberger and his crew on the morning of January 15th, 2009, when he and their crew needed it desperately. U.S. Airways Flight 1549, and you may remember this, from New York's LaGuardia Airport was forced to make an emergency water landing in the Hudson River. Pilots Captain Chesley Sullenberger and First Officer Jeffrey Skiles safely glided the plane to ditch in the river after multiple bird strikes caused both engines to fail. 
All 155 passengers and crew were evacuated from the partially submerged airframe as it sank into the river and were rescued by nearby watercraft. The incident came to be known as the miracle on the Hudson. And Captain Sullenberger and the crew were hailed rightly as heroes, as were the crew, the first responders and all those who made the rescue possible. But when Captain Sullenberger was asked about his role to play, what made it possible, he said, training. Based on my experience, he said, I was confident that I could make an emergency water landing that was survivable. Now just imagine being able to say, after being part of our community at Round Hill Community Church, based on my experience at Round Hill Community Church, I am confident that I can put generosity into practice whenever I'm called upon to do so. I think that one of the great callings of the church is to be a training ground for generosity, just like Captain Sullenberger experienced the training grounds of his work over the years as preparation for a really potentially catastrophic event as he experienced. And we do experience the church as a training ground for generosity in many steady, powerful ways. Every time we pray, every time we listen generously, every time we dream about the future, every time we receive an offering, a kind of giving that enables us to reach out to the world with hope. I remember talking once with a capital campaign consultant in a church that, where he was helping us to manage this campaign. And I was concerned because I said, you know, we've got so many offerings going on. We have a capital campaign going on. We receive an offering every Sunday. Sometimes we receive special offerings for people and causes out in the world. And I was afraid that this was just going to be too much for our congregation. And he said to me, never protect people from giving. Trust people to know how and where they will dedicate their giving, but don't protect them from that because there's always a way for people to find themselves in different opportunities to give to the wider world. A few years ago, one of our church school students uh, stepped fearlessly into the role of not protecting people from generosity. Before the pandemic, the children and youth of our congregation often hosted bake sales to raise funds for causes. They did that in the parlor. And all the items that particular day sold for a dollar. When one man produced a $20 bill for his item, a young girl with a very entrepreneurial spirit asked, can we keep the change? I don't know what that young girl's destiny will be, but if she does not wind up leading a giving campaign at some point in her life, that will be a huge loss. She was not interested in protecting anybody from being generous. A condition of constant readiness to do good for others. What a great way to live. When we're generous with praise and stingy with criticism, we make other people feel good. When we're generous with hope and stingy with despair, we make one another feel like there's a future worth living into. And we're, when we're generous with compassion, compassion for one another in the wider world and stingy with judgment, then we can create that constant readiness to do good for others until as it is in heaven, so may it be on earth. Amen.